Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 4th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Last week, the Dáil voted in favour of a Sinn Féin bill the party says will help keep people in their homes. 80 TDs voted for the no-consent, no-sale bill. 45 TDs who voted against have been accused of protecting banks and vulture funds over ordinary people. Local TD Imelda Munster says she is being contacted by people who have been told that their mortgage has been sold onto a vulture fund despite them engaging with the banks and making agreed payments and Imelda Munster is on the line a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning how many people have uh, told you that this is uh, the situation and what difference uh, would this legislation make to them? Well first off the no consent no sale bill will stop banks from selling mortgage loans to vulture funds without the consent of the mortgage holder and I suppose in simple terms the bill puts into law a code of practice that the central bank itself had drawn up um, the, code, the problem is the code of practice is voluntary. Um, and the first line of the code uh, states that a loan secured by the mortgage of residential property may not be transferred without the written consent of the borrower. So in other words, no consent, no, no sale. And that's exactly what the, the code of practice states. The problem is the banks were not um, adhering to it or abiding by it because of the very nature of the fact that it was voluntary. Um, I have had, off the top of my head, I would say recently about five different families who've come in to me. Um, but over the last 12 months, I've, I've actually lost count of the amount of people. And the problem is here, as Pierce Doherty had said, they're not normal times that we're living in at the moment. There's over 64,000 accounts that are linked to family homes in arrears and 45,000 of those are more than 90 days and the accounts in arrears of more than two years now make up for over 40% of accounts in arrears, you know, and the, the question you have to ask is, the thing to remember mm-hmm. is that tens of thousands of people didn't just decide to stop paying their mortgage on their family home that they themselves chose to buy that they saved for, that they committed to that they wanted it was the, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger economy, the banking collapse, and that, that's what led to people, um, tens of thousands of them, either losing, losing their jobs or their businesses and finding themselves 
fallen into arrears. And are you saying that the central bank supports this bill? This, no, the central bank had said that... Um, well, firstly, it was the central bank itself that drew up this code, right? But the, what the problem with the code is, as I said, is that it's voluntary. Now, the central bank, Pierce Doherty, because the minister in his response... Um, had said that the central bank were in, supporting, mm. were in supporting it and that they were looking for it to be rescinded. But Pierce Doherty has said they were, you know, they were perfectly happy with their own code that they drew up and that they felt was best practice. Okay. Up until the, he actually met them. The Central Bank of Ireland... looking to put it onto a statutory footing. The Central Bank of then. Ireland has significant concerns on the terms of the bill from consumer protection, prudential supervision and financial stability perspective. Look, at the time, it's the same, same stance as the government are taking. Um, Piers Doherty again had, had said to the Minister Pascal Donoghue the other night that he himself had put a question, Minister Donoghue, mm. um, the current finance minister, had put a question to the previous finance minister, Noonan, back, and, and the response was from Minister Noonan at the time, notwithstanding its voluntary nature, he expected that best practice would dictate that the code would be applied by all institutions to all classes of residential property. So nowhere, nowhere did he say in his response that it would lead to mass evictions. Nowhere did he say it would lead to pushing up interest rates or wrecking the economy or all the other pathetic excuses that he threw out the other night. This code of practice is still in place. They're just happy. The government are just happy with the Mm. fact that it's voluntary that there's nothing to force the banks to abide by it. But, but that's what your bill would do. Your bill would force that yeah, to yeah, be the case. And the Central law. Bank of Ireland has significant concerns in terms of consumer protection and prudential supervision, as well as financial stability. But how, how would the Central Bank, when you think of it logically, disagree with their own code of practice that they drew up? Why would they disagree with their own code of practice that they themselves drew up and supported? And you have to remember, the Central mm. Bank has always protected bank, banks. Be- because you're forcing always... a situation. Well, well, I mean, isn't that... The code of practice isn't drawn up just because somebody's bored and they decide to do it. A code of practice is drawn up because it is considered best practice. So if they're not prepared to adhere okay. to what they consider best practice, then what does that say about them? And but bear in mind that the central bank has always protected banks, but they also have a statutory function, as you said, of consumer protection, mm. and that's in itself is kind of contradictory. And this, this where we're, we're at now shows that. You know, nowhere else would you see... This is contradictory, because, I mean, this is one of the arguments uh, that has been made in relation to this, uh, that somebody else will end up paying it, and that uh, instead of protecting customers or new mortgage holders, uh, you'll ask them to pay for somebody's arrears. No, No, this bill will not stop banks from taking legal action. The only thing this bill will do is stop them selling off family home loans to vulture funds. That's the only thing. If you remember last November, um, it's the state bank... So if the bank can't sell on the loan to vulture funds, uh, what does it mean when you say they can take legal action that they would move to repossess? If there's... Firstly, I want to just say that on this bill, and it's very clear, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for borrowers. It doesn't mean that somebody can simply not pay or expect to stay in their home. Do you know what I mean? It's not about that. It's about the people that have been engaging with the banks um, 
last November, permanent ESB, a bank that was bailed out by the Irish people, announced that it was selling over 6,000 family homes, as we know, to an unknown entity. Now, these loans belong to families that have been engaging with the banks, and I know because I've met with these families, and have made a permanent arrangement with the bank, and many of them have never, never missed an agreed payment. That's what you're dealing with here. That's what this bill is, is going to try and prevent from now on. Imagine, just think for a minute now, imagine yourself, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes it does no harm to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But imagine that you saved for your deposit for your mortgage, you got your mortgage, you committed to your mortgage, and then, you know, God forbid, mm-hmm. you either lost your job or a member of your family got sick and you fell into arrears. How would you feel if you you went in, you did the right thing, you went into the bank, yep. you told them your financial situation, mm. you came to an agreement with them, yep. you made a permanent arrangement mm. with them, I can just afford to pay X amount of money per month, but I will commit to do that, and you did that, and you got one of those letters in your door to say mm. that they, without your permission, despite the fact that that's in the code of practice, have sold your family home onto a vulture fund. What difference would it make? It would mean that the vulture fund will... It'll mean eviction, basically, because... Would it? Because because it wouldn't necessarily mean eviction, because your rights are exactly the same, are they not? No, no, no. The vulture fund is good if you want to get rid of your your home. You know, if you want to become homeless and write off your debt, that's all the vulture funds are there for. If you want to stay in your home, vulture funds won't do that. They're short-term. They're for quick profit. That's all they are. There is... The banks, there's the onus on the banks to engage. But your your rights are exactly the same, people. are they not? You're, you have a, a contract and your contract has not changed. You're violated straight away by the virtue of the fact that your home has been sold onto a vulture fund. Your home loan has been sold onto a vulture fund without your consent. Your rights have been violated straight away. Mm. And that's the importance of this bill. Okay. Uh, uh, and if I said no, you can't sell it on to a vulture fund, would I run the risk of having my house repossessed? No, because... Once well, that is the argument that has been put up against this bill, no, isn't that, it? Look, at, as I said, all of the hysterical excuses. I mean, they were quite happy all along that this code of practice mm. was there in, in place, that the central bank itself drew, drew up. They were quite happy because it was voluntary and they didn't have to abide to it. And the government weren't holding them to account for it. I mean, the, 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 the central bank has said that no lender or credit firm has ever been punished for breach of the code of conduct. Mm. So they were quite happy. It was happy days for the, the banks and the building societies and the central bank that they could say that this well, is down in paper. The centra- if, if you remember, if you remember when Pierce Doherty, when the... Um, the banks, uh, the the permanent TSB was in at the financial committee, mm. and Pierre Stoherty had um, asked them straight out if they would apply the code, and they said, "Of course." That was what they said. But when Pierce then went on to explain the very fa- first line of the code, they then started backtracking. So well, the central bank is concerned uh, that uh, people who are in arrears will end up having their houses repossessed as a, a result of this situation. The central bank is also concerned that uh, those uh, who are not in arrears will lose the incentive to pay their mortgage and will strategically default because 
there's no possibility for the bank to sell on their loans and they're also concerned uh, that new mortgage holders will have to pay the cost all of, of all of this and they're also concerned about uh, the impact that this will have on the overall economy. These concerns are also shared by the Attorney General and of course the government. So uh, there is much argument uh, against what you're proposing, is there no, not? No, hold on a second. How would selling it on to a vulture fund without the consent of the homeowner afford them any protection. This is the usual red herrings where they come up about actually putting what they said was best practice into law to protect. The government are more interested in protecting the banks than they are the people. And, the, you know, the more interested in standing up for vulture funds before they stand up for tens of thousands of family homeowners that have, you know, fallen into arrears through no through no fault of their own, you know, through financial mm. circumstances, but are making attempts. Again, as I said, it's not about people who couldn't give a hoot, that never, you know, didn't bother engaging with the banks, didn't even give 20 euro a week towards it. It's not about those. It's about making sure, it's about making sure that no family home loan is sold without the consent of the homeowner. And banks are there, despite what the... And how do you define state. giving a hoot? Uh, who, who would be excluded from well, this? Somebody mm. that... I mean, you'll find... I had spoken to a couple of people over the years mm. that actually just said, look, I went back in. I, I wasn't paying. I wasn't engaged. Yeah. I just went back in and said, there's the keys. Take it. Mm. It's a milestone round my neck. You know, that they just said yeah. they just can't... But if somebody hasn't paid their mortgage for a year, uh, would they be covered by this? If somebody hasn't paid their mortgage for two no, years, about, or five no, years, no. or seven years, no. or nine years... It's not about that. It's not about that. It's about making sure... For example, I gave you the example mm. of the permanent TSB selling over 6,000... Okay, but if somebody was in nine years of arrears, would the bank needs their consent before being able to sell on their loan. There's protection there that once you engage with the bank, once Mm. you come to an agreed payment within your financial... But if somebody hasn't paid for seven or nine years... Well, that's... that's The the, the banks are there for that reason. It doesn't need to sell them onto a vulture fund without permission. The banks have done, I think it's well over 100,000 mortgage solutions. So, so, So the answer is no, the bank wouldn't be able to sell on the loan. The bank, well, the bank, the problem is with this bill that the bank, or that they, they it will stop banks from selling mortgage loans to vulture funds. Mm. And it goes, it's in line with the code of practice, the very first line of the code of practice that says a loan secured by the mortgage of residential property may not be transferred without the written consent of the borrower. Even if it's that's in arrears of anywhere between one and ten years? Well, I mean, that's, that's the... I'm not the, going to get into individual mortgage things. That's what the banks... OK, well, expa- banks explain it to us then. Um, in general terms, uh, why would you not want uh, somebody's mortgage to be sold on if they haven't paid anything for nine years? Why would you set out to protect them? Well, what we're saying is, what we're saying is, this bill, it's, we're not setting out to protect people who literally have not made any... But you have said that the bank whatsoever. wouldn't no. be able to sell on their loan. Sell on their loan. Yeah, yeah. So, so, the, so that's protecting the bank, them. No, what the bank is doing is selling on loans mm. belonging to families that have been engaged. Okay, but I'm not talking about those families. families. I'm talking about somebody who hasn't paid their mortgage for five years or whatever the case may be. Well, 
Yeah, well, look... Why, why are you stopping, or why would you want to stop the banks from selling on those loans? Well, what the banks would need to do is engage with those people as to why they haven't, so, why they haven't made any payments whatsoever. And anybody that has made no payment whatsoever is not really, you know, you'd have to question the fact of whether or not they actually want mm. to retain that. Yeah. Well, that goes... Reasons, but but know, what if they were paying so, five but, euro a, a week? Well, it's the amount you're getting well, into silly stuff now, Mike. No, you know, no, you are. That's I mean, what makes the bill silly. Offer five euro. No, the bill's not silly. The bill well, puts into law a code of practice that the that would central stop. bank itself drew up. So, are you saying now that the central bank? Are you saying like the government are saying that the central bank drew up that the government agreed with is now no no longer? best practice. Well, as I understand it, the central bank has expressed concerns about the bill, the Attorney General expressed concerns about the bill, and for the reasons that the government has uh, expressed its concerns about the bill and uh, declined to to support it. They never concerned, they never expressed concerns all the time that the very code of practice that they themselves drew up and agreed with as best practice Mm. was voluntary. As long as they didn't have to abide to it. It looks good on paper, we have this code of practice, but look, it's not law, so we don't have to abide by it. And we can sell off these homes to vulture funds. We can, you know, okay. le- allow the practice of a family getting a letter in the door, despite the fact that they're making repayments, they're engaging with the bank. We've sold your home without your permission. Okay. Despicable. But uh, I take it that uh, despite uh, this being passed in the doll, that's uh, where the matter ends uh, and that the government won't enact this legislation. The government are saying it'll block, mm. block the bill at committee stage. And this is despite the fact that the majority, as you said at the start of the programme, the, the majority voted in favour and want to see it uh, brought into, you know, statutory law. Like, um, they're saying it requires a, a money message, you know, but mm. Pierre Stoherty, um as said that they're abusing their position on money messages, that there's no charge or additional tax to the people and it's clear that they're abusing their position, it, its position. But he said, he also made it clear to the government that if at the um, committee stage, after legislative scrutiny, um, and if, you know, after the legislative scrutiny, if it's believed that the bill should go forward and if they block it by way of a money message, then that we may need to look at this through a legal forum. All right, because we'll it's an abuse of the process. They prefer to stand up for the vultures, the banks and not the people. Well, yeah, the That's Attorney General says yeah. it's not workable uh, apart from anything else, but we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, uh, as always, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Loud the Melda Monster. Michael Reed on LMFM. Nurses will be on strike again tomorrow and on Thursday of this week, the Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of the following week. And the INMO announced over the weekend that it's escalating this action and added an additional two days of strike action the following week on the Tuesday and Thursday, 19th and 21st of February. Let's talk about this with John Brown. Basil TD, Fianna Fáil's junior spokesperson on health, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning, John. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, was saying this morning, Fianna Fáil wants this every way, that on one hand, you say you want to regrade the nurses, and on the other hand, you say that you supported the Public Service Pay Commission, but you can't have it both ways. Well, Michael, I think the first thing that I would say is that Fianna Fáil want this situation resolved, um, having 
our nursing workforce out on strike for a potential eight days is will have a very serious effect on the whole uh, workings of the health system and uh, they're not going out on strike uh, other than they have very good reason to and uh, we have to resolve this like all uh, industrial disputes and from what I can see at the moment there seems to be no movement from the government to try and resolve which is a very difficult situation. Um, we put forward a private member's bill in the Dáil last week to set up an independent commission mm-hmm. uh, to look at the entire uh, work working arrangements of the nursing profession. Do you not believe uh, that the Public Service Pay Commission is independent of government? Well, the, it, it, the, they're, they're talking about a 2020, that the, the current... Um, the current agreement runs to 2020. Yes. And we're now in 20, early 2019, so we need to get the situation resolved now. And I, the only way that I see of doing it is to... Do you accept the form. independence of the Public Service Pay Commission? I, I accept the independence of it, but the right... I mean, we had a situation last year with the guards, which uh, got resolved. Mm. Um, we had a situation... Uh, an ongoing and totally unacceptable situation in the National Children's Hospital where there's an overspend of $450 million, and that seems to be okay. And Pascal Dunne, who seems to be able to sign off on that particular overspend, yet he can't seem to find a way of uh, resolving this strike with, with the nurses. Well, I don't think the minister would say the overspend on uh, the National Children's, Children's Hospital is okay, uh, but... Well, he's we... accepted it, Michael. He's, you know, he's, he's signed off on it. The government has signed off on the spend, and, and then after being informed that there was a significant overspend last August, they call um, in PwC in January. I mean, I would have Last November, the minister says. Well, they were informed that the Minister of Health was informed last August of significant overspends. That's in the report to the, the, the Health Committee last week. So my, I would have thought that if, if you're going to run into significant overspends, the time to call in a, a, a PwC would have been then, and rather than signing off on the $450 million and then carrying out uh, an investigation. It, it's, it's a it's a scandalous situation, but what, what, um, what we talk about today. What, what should he have done and said? Should he have uh, stopped uh, the building from proceeding? I mean, if you're looking, I mean, I think Michael people seem to lose when you when you when your currency changes from millions to hundreds of millions to billions. People lose the enormity of this. We're talking about a four hundred million overspend. Yes. Now, just to put that into context, I was at a meeting in Kerry last Friday with the county manager. The entire capital or the entire mm. day-to-day running cost of Kerry. The county of Kerry is 143 million for 2019. So you would re- run the county of Kerry for three full years with the amount of money that's been spent here. Now that's you know that's significant. So oh, it's hugely significant, I, 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 and I, I, I think thought, everybody, I government included, is not just concerned at the overspend, but is appalled by how much the cost has escalated. But the Minister for Health told the Health Committee he had three options: he could retender, he could scrap the plan altogether, or uh, he could uh, begin uh, or continue proceed as is. And that 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 was the option he took. Uh, do you believe that he had uh, any other options? Absolutely. I believe that you take an absolute root and branch review of why 450 million is being looked for extra and see if you can bring in some savings on that. I mean, they, they, they tied in a, a contractor who uh, tendered for phase one 131 million less than the next 
contractor which should have put alarm bells. So you would have delayed the construction of the children's no, hospital? I, I don't think there's a need to delay, Michael. Phase one of the contract is still ongoing. Mm. They, they could have still, they could have carried out a root and branch investigation into the 450 million, whereas, it's, I mean, you know, there was 90 million extra for a nine-month uh, extended contract period, 10 million a month for prelims. I mean, I mean, I, I you know, I, I have a background in, in, in construction. I worked at it for 15 years mm. as an engineer, and I, I've never seen prelims of that nature. So, I mean, there, there's an awful lot of questions to be answered, and bringing in PwC after you signed off on it, to me, was a catastrophic mistake. Mm, but would it not be prudent to wait until PwC reports before making conclusions on it? Well, the, the, the unfortunate situation, Michael, is that there is no... Uh, reversal of this now because they've signed off on it, you know. So we're we're in we're we're at a point of no return. Whereas if they had done what I'm talking about, which was review the situation when they were made first aware of this catastrophic overspend, then something could be done about it. But you know, but the, the, going back to the point, mm. Pascal O'Donoghue had no issue signing off on that and said, "Yeah, this is the right thing to do." Here we are looking for. Um, terms and conditions for our nurses and midwives and psychiatric nurses and he's adamant that he's not going to he's not going to in any way um, review the, the current mechanisms that are there and I think he has to Okay we, and going back to that issue of the pay claim and uh, the strike action uh, that has resulted from it I, I'm sure you're not suggesting that two wrongs make a right and regardless of the mistakes uh, that have been made in relation to the children's hospital how does the government find money it says it doesn't have to uh, to allow the nurses uh, realise their pay claim? Well, I mean, I, I, like every every negotiation or every strike has a starting point and a finishing point. The government need to interact with the nurses. They need to... There's other issues at play here. Their terms and conditions, the number of staff members, how many staff should be working in an A&E department to make it a safe and, and, and uh, workman, workman-like mm-hmm. place to work in. The psychiatric nurses, I'm dealing with issues down here around... Their, their very safety. And is it uh, just the nurses, though, that the government uh, should be negotiating with? Because, as the Minister says, there's 290,000 public sector workers. Are, are, are they not all equally entitled to a review if the nurses get it? Well, the, 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 the situation we're dealing with at the moment is that we have an eight, day, eight days of industrial action from the nurses that they voted uh, almost unanimously to go on. Therefore, they feel very strongly about their their current working terms and conditions are not up to standard, and that's what we have to deal with. The uh, all the other public sector uh, employees, they're in locked into their um, agreement till 2020, and we're we're not asking the government to break the particular uh, agreement, but we're asking them to engage. Uh, to put an independent commission in place to review exactly... It has an independent commission in place. This is what the Minister has been saying. The Public Service Pay Commission is that independent commission. Uh, For the nurses, Michael, you know what I'm talking about. Separately for the nurses to resolve this particular... So that the nurses shouldn't be subject to the Public Service Pay Commission? They are subject to the foster care. Yes, and they're locked into that deal as are the other public servants, aren't they? I don't don't like repeating myself. What I've stated is that an independent commission should be set up to look at the nurses' situation right now. 
And then what about the armed forces? And then what about the teachers? Uh, and then what about every... You, you, you know you don't have any particular uh, sympathy for the nurses' situation. You think that what they're striking for the moment isn't, is is that they don't deserve support, they don't deserve to be resolved. Well, I do. I, I have a different point of view. Okay. Uh, and do you not have any sympathy for the teachers? Of course, of course, I do. have you heard the story? Have you heard stories about uh, members of uh, the armed forces uh, are, are who, we, who are dependent on welfare, who are sleeping in their cars? Yeah, well, we're we're currently. Have you any sympathy with, sympathy for we're, them? We're currently dealing with a nurses' strike. Yeah, but I, sorry, I, sorry I, I I didn't realize that you were a government spokesman on this this issue. We're dealing with well, uh, a, we're dealing with a nurses. Uh, issue here, and that's what I'm on to talk about. There's an obligation on me to put forward the other side of uh, the argument, and uh, it, it's a, a government that, it, that it's a government that is facilitated by your party. You, 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 you should uh, go on as a spokesperson for possible. I'm I'm making that's really an outrageous I, thing to say. Do you know that? I'm making. Do you know that? That that really is an outrageous I'm thing to say. You're, you're saying that you don't you don't want you 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 don't want to be contested. You you want you want to to, uh, to make a political speech. Is that what you're saying? Michael, I'm having an interview here with you on the radio. Yes, you're making I, accusations I, I, against I, me. You you've I'm said not, that I'm a government spokesperson, and that I'm asking you as a result of the statement that you've made, the very derogatory statement I might add that you've made about me. I'm asking you if you want to make statements on this radio station uncontested. I'm making the point for uh, the, the the nurses uh, strike, the terms and conditions that they're looking to improve possible way forward and that is what I'm suggesting. And are you, you, seem, you you don't seem to want to accept that. That's fine. I'm making the well, point. We, 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 we've I'm, a little I'm, thing I'm here about discussing things and debating things uh, and allowing our listeners to make their own opinion, whether they have sympathy or not. Uh, but rather than asking the presenter if I have sympathy for somebody and not accepting them, that that uh, results in you being asked if you have sympathy for other public sector workers. It just seems to me that we're going around the circuit. All right, we leave it there. Thanks very much indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. John Brazel is a TD for Kerry and Fianna Fáil's junior spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now the County Council is uh, to ask members of uh, the council uh, to outlaw election posters. Let's hear more about this uh, with local Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne. Good morning to you, Joanna, and thanks for joining us. Uh, The council has already been making this case at committee level. Tell us more, if you will. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Yeah, in effect, um, Leg County Council senior officials brought a draft policy to the Housing and Community Strategic Policy Commission meeting last Monday. Now, there was no prior um, communication or consultation with the members on this policy. It was only presented to us in, in the middle of the meeting. But in effect, it would see the removal of implied consent to erect election posters on all council owned managed or maintained structures throughout the entire county of Loud. So that you're talking lampposts, uh, bridges, roundabouts, anything like that, that that the council would manage or maintain. And, and I take it if there isn't implied consent, there isn't going to be consent <laughs> and effectively it means outlawing election posters. It will indeed, yeah. Now, as I said, this was only brought to committee stage last Monday, so it was endorsed at the Housing SPC to be brought forward to full council 
um, and it, it's a reserve function of the council for, for the entire membership of the tw- 29 members of the council to either approve or or debate or whichever way it goes mm. on the day. And tell, um, us the, t- and, uh, t- tell us the logic behind it. Uh, there's many reasons uh, that the councillor are put f- putting forward, uh, including uh, how people don't want election posters. Uh, but actually, before you tell us the logic of it, uh, do you agree with the proposal? Um, I see the merits of it. I, I would have reservations at this stage that this is being brought at the 11th hour for the upcoming European and local elections. Many par- larger party conventions were held October, November, December. I think everybody, maybe Barfina Gale at this stage, has declared mm. their candidates for the elections. And I fear maybe that some parties, including my own, I don't know if we have or haven't as of yet, um, may have already printed the posters. Um, right. And I mm. just fear that this may be brought at the 11th hour. But we, we will learn more about that when it does come to council as everybody gets their voice. And well, if you have already printed your posters, <laughs> perhaps that defeats one of the arguments because they're suggesting it would save you and other candidates uh, money. Yeah, but if they're already printed, yeah, it's obviously yeah, it um, yeah, money gone yeah, down the yeah, swanny. Yeah. Now, I do, I do um, agree with the voluntary code of practice that was implemented and adhered to by all um, political parties within the county that saw the recent um, presidential election, there was no posters erected within 50 kilometre speed limit zones. This was requested by the tidy towns groups throughout the county and it worked very well. I would agree with that. Mm. Um, I think maybe that might have been a bit more timely to, to look at for this round of elections um, considering we're at the end of January, you're talking mid-February mm. before this could even be passed. So I, do, I don't know what the general consensus on this is going to be as of yet until, right. until it comes and there are many reasons, health and safety, and how it can obscure vision and lead to, to dangerous uh, situations for motorists and that sort of thing. Uh, they're also talking uh, about the environment and uh, single-use plastic, such as uh, the cable ties that end up staying on lampposts. But can you use lampposts? Uh, because uh, I thought it was interesting uh, that uh, the council has been highlighting how public utility companies, including Air and ESB, have withdrawn any implied consent. Yes, that that was actually um, mentioned within the draft policy. They presented that um, Air and ESB have withdrawn their their consent mm. prior to this. But the ESB, I believe, uh, we were told by officials on the day, only managed 3,000 of the 13,000 lampposts within the county of Loud. Okay. The other 10,000 of them are... They must be on Loud County Council land, or for that reason, then they're maintained and managed by Loud County Council. That was is what we were told in the day. I have mm. looked, sought to clarify that. I haven't got a response as of yet. And how do you but know which are which? Um, I I don't, but <laughs> I I would assume that the engineers and those responsible have maps and 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 zones that that are applicable to each entity. But as I said, I have sought clar- clarification on that prior to this coming forward at the council meetings. We'll know a bit more about that then. All right. Uh, But uh, it's something that uh, people uh, have strong feelings on. I mean, I I think politicians love when they see the posters go up and we quite often get calls from people uh, who aren't as keen uh, and are, are very anxious for them to come down. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think this is where this is stemming from is complaints from public and community groups to the local authority over the period of elections. Um, there was reservations raised uh, about this on the, on the day at the committee meeting that, um, you know, does it push new candidates? I myself will be mm. a new candidate standing in my first election, but does it push those of us at a disadvantaged 
to those who are already elected and have been on lampposts before. And there were suggestions um, made that, you know, was there consideration for alternative visual space for all candidates to platform themselves? Or was there consideration for perhaps a limited number of posters, perhaps 50 posters, as opposed to some larger parties throwing out a couple of hundred that you limit it down to a certain number and, and that way people were still getting the opportunity to platform themselves and these <clears throat> these were stated by the officials of Lake County Council that they weren't considered um, more so the visual space because how would they pick a visual space? Would it be a risk of vandalism and would it be favourable to one particular candidate over another depending on its location? It could be in somebody's stronghold area. So these weren't considered um, and they weren't they weren't amended in the draft policy that has gone forward to Loud County Council. So it will either be a complete all-out ban or or mm. or not. <laughs> or not. Will turkeys vote for Christmas? Sorry? Will turkeys vote for Christmas? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's it. It could go anyway on the day. It, yeah. it will depend on um, the numbers. I would imagine the independents and, and, and smaller parties would be behind this due to the cost factor. It, yeah. it will just mm. depend on, on what way the larger parties go with it on the day. I have circulated a copy of this to my party colleagues in Sinn Féin. We will be sitting down to discuss this in advance of the council meeting and we will go from there and okay. I, I presume the other parties will be doing the same. All right, so uh, that'll be in the middle of the month. Yeah, well, it's mm-hmm. the corporate policy group mm-hmm. meeting is tomorrow morning and that is to approve the agenda. I would envisage this will be on that agenda for approval and once it's approved at the corporate policy group okay. it will go forward to the next right, full Joanna. council meeting and I think that's the 18th of February. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us this morning, local Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Fergal was in touch. He was listening into your interview with Deputy Imelda Munster. And he's come to the conclusion, for some reason, Michael, that you hate Imelda Munster or have no time for her. Who paid the cost of bailing out these banks? Me and you, Michael. Me and you. The banks win again, says Fergal. Okay. <laughs> Do I need to respond? I don't hate him, Alamoster. I would hope I don't have to respond. Okay. Derek also contacted us on the same topic. And Derek cannot understand why the government would turn its back on ordinary citizens who are struggling to try and pay back mortgages for whatever reason. He thinks if people are genuinely trying to pay, well then there should be supports in place for them. Okay, well as we heard it would also apply to people who are not trying to pay, whether they're genuine in uh, their default or otherwise, uh, because uh, it would cover everybody and uh, you wouldn't be able to, the bank that is, wouldn't be able to sell on a mortgage without the consent of the mortgage holder. Marie was listening in this morning also and she's directly affected and she was prompted to take up, I suppose, lift up the phone because of her situation. She says her husband was in construction and lost his job at the end of 2009. They had difficulty paying their mortgage because he lost the job and they were non-stop in and out to their bank. 
even though they were under huge pressure financially, they scrimped and scraped, she says, to make sure that they were able to pay the interest on their loan. And she feels that the bank wouldn't do anything to help them on the principal loan and feel that they deliberately walked them into arrears. We did not miss a single interest payment, but yet they sold us on to a vulture fund, never even told us in advance, never asked for our permission. It just happened. And we are the ones who really tried hard and did our best. My husband leaves his bed at 4.30am every morning to go to work. He's not home until 8.30pm at night. Doesn't see the children at all. Our stress levels are through the roof. I agree with this Sinn Féin bill. What do they want us to do? My husband could go on the dole and look for a free house, but he has chosen to go out and work and pay taxes. It's ironic that we are actually paying to bail out the bankers, yet we've been hit like this and we feel that the government has turned its back on us. All right. Uh, Hold that thought for a a moment, Marie. We'll come back to more of those comments in a moment. But let's talk now, if we can, about uh, the activities of dissident Republicans in the Coolies and indeed uh, Garda search of uh, lands near Omeath, uh, which took place on Friday and resulted in the recovery of what Gardaí described as a substantial quantity of ammunition and a mortar tube. Niall O'Connor is a crime reporter for the Irish Daily Mirror and on the line. Good morning, Niall, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, This obviously came as uh, uh, news of much concern to many of our our listeners. Uh, What more do you know about what Gardaí have been investigating? It's a long-term operation, really. It's intelligence-backed, and it's been carried out by the Special Detective Unit and Crime and uh, Security. Um, Essentially, the obviously we've had a, a, a very recent bombing in Derry, um, but this operation is going on longer uh, than that than that incident. But I suppose it has brought on a, a certain urgency to it. So essentially, what happened was the um, these uh, anti-terror detectives, I, sh- I suppose you could call them, uh, had, had gathered information that there was uh, we'll say bunkers on the Cooley Peninsula mm-hmm. um, in around Omid. Uh, they put a, a job together uh, and they started searching the land. Now, they were backed up by the emergency response unit, which shows the, the kind of the seriousness of this in terms of that, you know, that's the danger that, like, they were there to protect um, the search teams. So that tells you exactly how dangerous this is. So whilst searching land, then they kind of searched it for, we'd say, they went over a large area of land uh, and they found a number of uh, what they've termed as items they're very secretive about what they actually found, but it's my understanding that they found uh, a mortar tube. Um, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. A large, num- a large amount of ammunition and other weapon uh, orientated issues so uh, items so that's that's essentially where they are with it at the moment they uh, and that it's the when you say that. bunkers uh, you mean that they're stashing this weaponry uh, across the coolies yeah look this isn't just put uh, we'd say lying out in the open or for that matter it's just you know dumped in a ditch this is a concerted um, and quite sophisticated uh, as it goes uh, kind of a strategy of hiding hiding the weapons in the area. Um, mm. I suppose this harks back back to the days of the, the 80s and the 90s um, and uh, certain question marks over where, where IRA weaponry was, was stored or, or, or hidden. And uh, this certainly is, is a, you know, it has all the hallmarks of this new IRA, this group called the new IRA, or at least that's what they're calling themselves. Mm. Um, and uh, they seem to be setting up and getting ready for a major campaign uh, and when you say uh, a mortar tube, what is that? Is that uh, a missile launcher or what is it? Uh, the military use these uh, for what they kind of, it's, we'll say, small groups of soldiers can use the, uh, a mortar to bring their own artillery with them. But in this instance, the IRA, as we're all aware, um, have had a history of making uh, homemade mortar tubes uh, and mortars. And of course, the most famous incident in which the IRA, um, or, at least, or at least the provisional IRA, had used the, that weapon was in Downing Street, um, and uh, when they attacked Downing Street, essentially what it is is it's a length of, of uh, metal tube, mm. um, and a projectile um, will be popped into that tube, and then with a detonation that that uh, that projectile then will fly through the air, mm. um, and it it carries a, a large quantity of explosives. When it lands, it detonates, and uh, of course, from their perspective, hopefully, causes as much damage as possible. But um, right, well, it, somebody has some very serious uh, intentions. Obviously, if they're harbouring this uh, sort of weaponry, uh, you mentioned the new IRA and indeed uh, the successful bomber attack in Derry uh, last month. Uh, and uh, in your article in the Mirror, you said that this group is being led by a notorious bomber. Do you know if that individual or the group are based in Cooley or in Loud, as the case may be? I think the my understanding now uh, of this at the moment, and of course it is very difficult to get mm. solid information on this, but my information is is that this man who would be leading this organisation is based in Northern Ireland, not immediately in the Cooley area. However, he uh, would be, uh, like the rest of his terrorist organisation, would be um, very mobile. Um, it's not a great distance, of course, to go to the Cooley. The, Cooley, the, the great thing about the Cooley is, for them, is that you know it's a rural area. There's a lot of uh, woodland. There's a, a lot of uh, kind of rolling hills where you can operate without being spotted immediately. Um, and uh, I presume that's why they selected this area. It's also very, very close to the border. Um, 
And as we know, the border is becoming more and more interesting in uh, geopolitics at the moment, and uh, it's certainly becoming more and more interesting for uh, terrorist organisations who want to bring us back to the the bad old days. Mm, It's hard to know if uh, the glass is half full or half empty uh, on foot of the snooze in that it's terrible that these people are there and that they're uh, living on our doorstep and storing up this weaponry. Uh, On the other hand, uh, good news uh, in the sense of uh, the Garda intelligence and how uh, they've uh, made these raids. Absolutely, and I think people should take some comfort from the fact that the security services or security services on Garda are appear to be on top of this. Uh, however, they have an old saying, um, the IRA, that uh, you know this, the state needs to be lucky every day, and they need to be lucky only once, and they'll just be, you know, they, these these people are uh, are murderous. Um, that bombing in Derry shows the the level of they don't care about the people that are on the street that are walking past at the time or anything like that. And in this instance, uh, they're very, very dangerous. But, um, you know, the guards would say that they they have uh, a large intelligence network that is providing information for them. But the only problem is, is that once is all they need to get to get through. Niall, thanks very much for joining us uh, this morning. Niall O'Connor, crime reporter with uh, the Irish Daily Mirror there. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts. You have some more comments, I take I it, Marie. Indeed. Yeah. John from Navin phoned in this morning. He was making some observations in relation to the many problems that we have here on the health front and he says that he was watching a documentary the other night on the BBC and it was saying that there are 182,000 cervical tests in the lab in England waiting to be checked and so there's months and months of delays there but that's only one part of it he says that the NHS in England are short thousands of nurses and doctors so it doesn't leave us much worse than anybody else or much better here in Ireland and finally then just to uh, Mairead who phoned in on the topic of the nurses and says that with the announcement now of another two days of industrial action where is that going to leave patients if there's more operations cancelled? Yeah well it's a very serious dispute and no sign of a resolution as we speak uh, but we'll leave that there for the moment and uh, thanks Marie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us if you'd like to add to what's been said as always we'd love to hear from you our telephone number is 185715958 Well as you've been hearing Social Justice Ireland uh, says uh, that Ireland's economic model is no longer fit for purpose and that there is a need uh, for a new model uh, which will deliver human rights, human dignity and human development. We're joined by Father Sean Haley, Director of Social Justice Ireland, to hear more. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, This is a a 300 annual page report uh, that you've published today. You're suggesting raising €3 billion in extra taxes. Uh, But to break it down, you say that there's five key outcomes of this new economic model that you're proposing. That's right. We basically think that... um the development model that we have uh, is lopsided, uh, principally because it has focused uh, on de- developing the economy first and everything else is supposed to follow. But as people know well at this stage, uh, economic growth does not, and, and very substantial economic growth, as Ireland has experienced, doesn't actually lead to all other issues being addressed. So what we're saying is basically you need to to have five 
targets, if you like, that you want to build, but you must do it simultaneously They must because they interact with each other. The first, obviously, to have a vibrant economy. Mm. Second, to have de- decent services and infrastructure. Third, to have just taxation. Fourth, to have good governance. And fifth, to have a focus on sustainability. And that's environmental, economic, and social sustainability right mm. across the board. Well, we have a vibrant economy, don't we? We sure do. We're one of the mm. uh, top five richest countries in the world, measured as a per capita basis for gross domestic product. But as people know, uh, that's actually meaningless when you think in terms of the impact it doesn't have uh, on so many people. Despite the, the wealth we have, we're in a situation where we have three quarters of a million people in poverty. Of those three, of those three quarters of a million, almost a quarter of a million are children. And quite significantly, 109,000 of them actually have a job, uh, which means that they're not earning enough to bring them out of poverty. So having a job is not the solution to poverty as far as they're concerned. And is that starting point the end point? Uh, That's one out of uh, the five outcomes already achieved. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that uh, the four have been eluding us thus far? We haven't been giving them the, uh, the, the priority that they deserve. That's the problem. We have focused completely on the a vibrant economy issue or the growing economy. So we have put a huge amount of effort into growing the economy but then haven't actually followed through uh, and at the same time developed the housing, developed the healthcare system, developed the education system, the education, uh, the, the public transport system, our water services, rural broadband, all of those things that we need to do if we're going to have uh, a genuinely participative society where everybody has what's required to live life with dignity. That's the problem we have at the moment, that we have huge amounts of money in the country. Mm. We're one of the richest countries in the world, but we have this reality that our our poverty rate today is very slightly higher than it was 25 years ago. in uh, in 1994. Now, that's not good enough. We've had huge growth in all of that time. We've gone from being a relatively middle-income country to one of the highest-income countries in the world. Uh, That's that's measured, though, as a percentage of GDP. It uh, it is not measured on the basis of the distribution of that uh, income that we have. So what we're looking at is a situation where our economic fundamentals have been very positive and have developed very positive. But when we look at Ireland's social well-being, that has been far less impressive. Yeah, but when you talk about services, uh, you've got to look at the demands on government. And you mentioned the health service, and I suppose uh, that's a very topical issue at the moment, uh, not just uh, because of uh, the strike, but in the sense that you talk about it there, because uh, the government is saying, look, uh, the nurses are are looking for an increase in pay in around 12%. They say that's 300 billion. The only way to do that is to reduce services. Uh, It's a juggling act at times for the government uh, with all of the demands on us. But actually, that reality proves our point. Because if you look closely at what the nurses are doing, they're looking for a pay increase. Why? Because they, they say that it isn't viable for nurses to be working in Ireland today uh, at the, the levels of income they have, and that's why nurses are emigrating. Why is it not viable? Because the cost of housing on accommodation, renting, whatever, is much higher than it would it should be. That the cost of healthcare is higher. Uh, that the uh, cost of public transport is higher. Uh, so much problematic 
is problematic because of the fact that we have failed to deliver our services, failed to deliver infrastructure at the same time as we're growing the economy. With all the money that we've got uh, in, in, in the last 20, uh, 25 years, the, all of the money that has been created, I know we had a crash in the middle of it, but we had the Celtic Tiger, and now we have one of the richest economies in the world. Uh, we're in a very good situation economically, uh, but the reality is that the money that we have is not being used to provide the services and the like health and education or the infrastructure like housing and, and rural broadband and public transport that people expect because they, most Irish people would believe that we should have a standard of living equivalent maybe to all peer countries in, in, in Western Europe, uh, the, the, the sort of Nordic countries, Germany, France. Austria, Belgium, uh, those kinds of countries. They go on holidays in these places. They, they see, um, a ver uh, and, and they look a lot about it on, on, on social media and on the general mainstream media, and they see a standard of living that they think we should have because our income levels as a country are, this, are in many cases higher than these countries. Yet, we don't have it. Why? Because in actual fact, we're trying to provide services and infrastructure with American levels of taxation. And we are not going to be able to deliver that kind of high-level uh, infrastructure and, and social services at the same level uh, as those uh, European countries uh, while we focus on uh, an American level of taxation. That's the problem we have. So we need to think in terms of having a just taxation, which mm. is not about increasing income tax, but is actually about broadening the tax base and increasing our total tax by maybe two and a half to three billion altogether uh, over a few years. Not mm. do it all in one shot, but do it over a few years. That would still keep us as a relatively low tax economy, but it would sh it would give us the additional money to to tackle uh, the infrastructure and the social uh, services, so we'd be able to improve our healthcare, we'd be able to improve our education, our water system, our housing, our rural broadband, our public transport, the kinds of things that people generally feel are below par when we, they look at us and they, uh, ourselves and they, we compare ourselves to our European peer countries. All right. Well, we would appear to be below par in terms of providing housing for people. And uh, this is uh, something uh, that you've looked at uh, extensively in this report. Uh, people might also read your opinion piece in the Irish Independent today on this. Uh, but uh, you've been highlighting how four times as many children are homeless now than four years ago. We have the worst homelessness figures ever in this country in around 10,000 people and that figure is disputed uh, and uh, looked on differently by different people and do you take issue uh, with how the government have been taking people off the homeless figures? I, cert I certainly do. Um, I, th I think it's difficult to actually count uh, because of the way the government keeps taking groups out of it. Uh, but uh, it certainly is in excess of 10,000, uh, uh, 10, 11, very much I'd say in excess of 11,000 uh, people who are actually really homeless today. Not alone that, we are also arguing that having hubs as a solution uh, is not adequate. Like hubs are a better, uh, are, are a progress on uh, hotels. Uh, on, on hotels. Mm -hmm. The reality is across Europe, hubs are only people are uh, allocated to hubs for about two weeks. Mm. Here, it seems to be a permanent solution, and you don't you, you, you kind of your homelessness is solved or something of that nature. We have, in effect, 115,000 plus households in need of long-term social housing. That's 115,000. And I, I note today that the Minister for Housing was was claiming that uh, we're factually wrong in what we're claiming that uh, his his plan for. Uh, 
rebuilding Ireland uh, is failing. What we're basically saying is that, and we've said this many times on this program, and your listeners across Louth and Mead and the whole Northeast will remember this clearly. We said from the very beginning that if you fully implemented that plan that they have, and if you delivered everything in it, which most government plans never have, never do, but even if you did, you still only be halfway towards towards the solution that's required because the scale is not what is required to actually eliminate homelessness and to eliminate the the social housing waiting list, which is what we should be aiming for. We have, as well as that, we have 72,000 families in mortgage arrears, and we have a a whole lack of construction of social housing uh, in Ireland. And, you know, we we have some people, uh, prominent people on, on, on public bodies claiming that the local authority should not be building houses. An article in one of yesterday's mm-hmm. main newspapers arguing this case. And I find this ridiculous beyond words. The reality is local authorities have to build and have to build substantially in terms of the numbers of, ho- of social housing units, or we're going to be left with a housing and homeless crisis for decades to come. And that argument was uh, that the local authorities shouldn't be taking the risk. Your argument is it's a social responsibility. Absolutely, and government should back that up. And we've suggested how it can be done. Not alone that, we've also uh, worked out a fully costed uh, cost rental system uh, that government could actually implement and do it off the books, which would be able. They would then be able to borrow money from the European um, uh, Development Bank and to be able to put very substantial additional money into the development of social housing and affordable housing, which is exactly what should be done because we need, as I say, 115,000 additional units if we're to solve the problem of 115,000 households uh, on long-term social housing waiting lists. And the reality is, are we? Uh, the question is, are we or are we not serious about ensuring that everybody has appropriate accommodation? I would argue that if you look at what the government does, mm. as distinct from the, what the government says, mm. there is no credibility in the claim that we are actually going to uh, eliminate uh, these waiting lists. Okay, but time. is it not a, a case that the government, or what the government does, reflects the will of the people, because the people have voted for them, or do you believe that people are too detached from these decisions and if that is the case how can people be more involved i think there is it is there is an important need for the people for people to be more involved but first of all i think there's an issue about people are actually being misled by government. Government constantly has been telling us that a solution uh, to, the, to the housing problem is just around the corner. Now, we've been listening to this for several years, and the reality is that each of the numbers is getting worse, not better. We're not even keeping pace with the requirement. The actual waiting lists, the homelessness numbers are going up. The waiting lists uh, are going up. Uh, the numbers of units required are higher than they were and until such time as the government's uh, response is on the scale required to bring that down, to bring uh, waiting this down to zero, uh, we're not being serious about the problem. At the moment, it's still in a situation where there's 115 plus thousand uh, households, actually households, remember, not not individual people, households, on waiting lists for social housing. That means they can't afford uh, to uh, buy a house, but they also can't afford to rent a house. So if, you have, if you're talking about those kinds of numbers, there's nothing uh, on that scale planned by government. 
So that's why I would basically say to the Minister for Housing that uh, the government's policy has actually failed. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. And as always, thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a 29-year-old Lithuanian woman who had been living in Dundalk is missing and uh, presumed murdered. Uh, she was last seen at a house in Laytown, and Gardaí have launched a murder investigation following information that came to it subsequent to the 29th of May when Ghidra was last seen. Uh, this is uh, this. Uh, Lithuanian woman, Ghidra uh, Ragukaiti. Uh, now, the information that came to Gardi uh, follows uh, some witness information uh, that they received, and uh, it's believed now that uh, Ghidra was raped in two houses in Drogheda and at that third house in Laytown, where she was last seen before being murdered and then secretly buried. It is a very unusual situation in that this is a murder investigation, but a body has not been discovered as yet. Michael O'Toole is a crime correspondent for the Irish Daily Star and he's been speaking with Ghidra's sister, Ginarty, who is based in Rome and she's been giving him some more information about this. I've been speaking to her really since October last year when Gardy upgraded the search for Jedra from that of a missing person to a murder inquiry. So uh, she's very forthright. She's very uh, upset, obviously, at what has happened. So I've had, as I say, I've had a few conversations with her. Um, and she, do, she did tell me a few months ago that a witness came forward who has spoken to the Guardian. And I actually read the interview. This witness gave an interview to Lithu- a Lithuanian newspaper. Mm. And I read it. And, she's, and the witness speaks of seeing uh, Jedra being sexually assaulted and raped in a house and then put in a bath, taken from the bath and then brought into bed and then she she disappears. But, uh, but more details have now come forward in the, in the couple of days. I was speaking to Jintara two, to, two days ago and she tells me that there, there is information now that Jintara was first of all uh, raped and sexually assaulted in one house in the Drahad area uh, near where she was last seen, which was in Leighton a few miles away. And then she was brought from one house in Drogheda to another house in Drogheda where she was raped again, then brought to the house in Laytown where uh, she was attacked and then she was last seen being taken from the house. So the belief is she was murdered sometime after that. Your article in uh, The Star this morning makes for very gruesome reading and uh, the details of what happened to Jidra are most disturbing, to say the least. And you also report this morning, Michael O'Toole, that there are many people in the Drogheda area, Lithuanians, uh, who are aware of what happened to her but are afraid to come forward with information. Yeah, this reminds me, ethnic groups... The more than the Irish people who suppose who go to England or America, they tend to keep things very much to themselves. And this has happened, for example, in, in the Chinese community. There's been an awful lot of uh, harassment and extortion attacks. And they tend to keep them to themselves. There might be a mistrust of Gardaí. They're seen as police like anywhere else around the world. And uh, Jintara is worried that there are people in the Drogheda and County Meath areas. Uh, they're obviously very tight-knit group, but she is convinced that, obviously there's one witness who has come forward and has spoken to Gardy, but she is convinced 
that there are other Lithuanians in the Drogheda and East Meath area who know exactly what happened to Jedra but are, haven't come forward and she says the reason that they haven't come forward is, is that they are terrified. Um, she, she would know that she, she believes carried at this murder. It's two Lithuanian men. Uh, she says they're very violent men. One was in prison uh, some time ago but has been released uh, and they and she says they have a fearsome reputation for violence so they're really covering up uh, this uh, murder by fear so she wants Lithuanians in the in the, the area uh, who would have known uh, Jedra who, or who know what happened, had happened to her to come forward to Gardaí and she describes Jedra as somebody who appeared to have been drugged uh, she spoke to her at one stage uh, but she wasn't able to answer Yes, the witness says that. She says her eyes were running in her head. Um, so uh, it's it quite gruesome what she said happened to her, that the men uh, said, realised that she was in a very, very bad way and tried to revive her. So there was some quite graphic uh, evidence of her being uh, sexually assaulted, put in a bath, in a, perhaps in a bit to revi- revive her uh, and that sort of thing. So yes, there, there is uh, the, the witness does seem to be very credible and has spoken to Gardner. And she said uh, that Jadra's legs were going blue at one stage uh, and that's the time that they put her in a, a bath. Uh, do we know what might have caused that? Uh, we, we, the suspicion would be that there was some sort of reaction to drugs that she was given. Uh, so that would be the, that mm. would be the main focus of the inquiry. OK. Uh, and so the concern that these men had was uh, that she might have died as a, a result. When they managed to revive her, they raped her a third time. Yes, and um, uh, Jean Tara was, uh, says that she believes that she struggled because the men wanted to uh, force her into a life of prostitution and that was not something she did not want to become a uh, sex worker. She came to Ireland a few months beforehand. We know that she had been living in a house uh, near the college in Dundalk, but on the 29th of May she was, she was last seen at this house in Laytown. So, uh, yeah, that's it really. And she managed to phone her father uh, shortly before she was actually killed, it's believed. Yes, no, we don't know uh, if she was upset or uh, in distress at that stage, but she had been in contact with her father. That was just a few hours before she was last seen. All right. Uh, and her, her death uh, uh, occurred uh, because of a, a struggle. Uh, that's the theory that Gardaí are working off at, at, at the moment, is it? Well, yeah, look, they, 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 they obviously don't have any body, and that, that's really what they're interested in trying to find out. They believe she's buried somewhere mm. in the supposing the Leinster area, or they're trying to find the body. Once they find the body, they will hope to be able to move from there. But that, that's one thing that they are looking at. All right, so no doubt there's uh, people in the Dundalk area as well uh, who'd uh, be uh, familiar with this young woman. She was just 29 years of age because she'd been living in Dundalk, and it's believed that uh, she lost her life in County Meath. Yes, uh, I'm sure there are Lithuanians in Dundalk, but Chintara was talking really Mm. focused to her is in the Drogheda area so she believes the answer to this mystery lies in the, in the area around Drogheda. All right. Although the body may be in County Meath uh, because uh, these men that you're talking about were seen to carry a body. Yeah, this, it, she could be it could, she could be anywhere I mean that's the sad reality. They could have driven her off anywhere to hide the evidence and hide her body. All right, I can't uh, imagine what it's like for the family. Uh, When you say the sister was uh, concerned, uh, uh, take it, uh, it's uh, more than difficult, especially given the distance uh, that there is between where she is and where her sister may be buried, as she believes. Yes, I mean, you can only imagine her, uh, some of her family are in England, 
uh, all of the family home is in Lithuania. Sintara lives in Italy. English isn't their first language. I, I speak to her in Italian, so it's it's obviously a very, very difficult time for her. Mm-hmm. And it is, of course, a, a live guard investigation uh, and based uh, on uh, the theory that she was killed, a murder investigation, in other words, Michael. Yes, and it's quite rare um, for a missing person's inquiry to be upgraded to murder. So it's only happened a couple of times in my, really in my career. Uh, you may remember that couple missing from Stamullen um, uh, about three or, three or four years ago. They're missing uh, and, they're, and it, that's been upgraded to murder. So this is a murder inquiry as well, but it is very, very rare. So the Guardi only do that when they're satisfied, obviously, that the person has been murdered. Okay, Michael. Listen, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Okay. Thank you very much. Michael O'Toole, crime correspondent with uh, the Irish Daily Star, speaking to me before we come on air today. Michael Michael Reed Reed on LMFM. LMFM. Now, today is World Cancer Day, and uh, we'll mark uh, the day by speaking with uh, the Irish Cancer Society. Kevin O'Hagan is Cancer Prevention Manager with uh, the Cancer Society on the line. Uh, Very good morning to you, Kevin, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, You're using the day to call for free screening for lung cancer. Yes, Michael, thank you very much for having us on. And uh, yeah, World Cancer Day, and we want to put the focus today on on lung cancer because it is one of the most common cancers affecting both men and women. And and, and while we see great um, advances made in treatments and and survival for prostate and breast cancer and many of the other cancers, unfortunately, lung cancer seems to still be one of the, it is, as I say, the most common cancer. And and unfortunately, there are 1,800 people die from lung cancer each year. And we're finding that that the survival rate um, is quite low, unfortunately. And that's primarily because of a late diagnosis. About two-thirds of lung cancers are diagnosed late, and about a quarter of those are diagnosed in accidents and an emergency department. And so treatment is limited mm. when they're diagnosed at a late stage. So we are calling today for a real refocus on, on cancer, lung cancer screening. Uh, we know that recently there's been a a very successful trial in in, in uh, Belgium and in the Netherlands, and they they indicated a reduction in lung cancer deaths by about forty four percent. So we're really calling on on the government to kind of have a serious look at uh, lung cancer screening and um, and and obviously the incredible benefits here for 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 people in Ireland. And, and what and, cohort of people would you want to be testing? Well, it's 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 primarily the, the trial in, in the Netherlands were, were high risk people based on uh, based on their smoking history, uh, people who've been either current smokers or former former smokers within mm. the last ten years. They're obviously at a very high risk because about uh, ten lung cancer cases are, are directly linked to smoking. So a history of smoking certainly, and and that age bracket between fifty five. And 70, 75, because we know that the average age of a lung cancer diagnosis is around uh, 69 and 70. Okay, uh, and as you say, not just smokers, but former smokers. Uh, if people yeah. gave up five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are they still at risk? Well, certainly your risk declines. The, 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 the sooner you give them up and the longer you're off them. Um, but we know that, 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 that you're not completely clear Sometimes, and of course, it depends on the the level of smoking and how, for how long and, and what intensity have you been smoking. I mean, if you're smoking a lot of cigarettes for a long period of time and given up recently, your, your risk is still there. It's probably reduced. So it depends on on those kind of the the, the, the how much you've been smoking over the years. Okay, uh, but as you say, if it can be detected earlier uh, there's better chance of a better outcome, uh, uh, and. Yeah. Uh, 
otherwise, uh, you're talking about late diagnosis uh, and uh, very uh, grim uh, prognosis for yeah. people who take it. Yeah, that's, as I say, like, uh, apparently, you know, about a quarter of lung cancers are diagnosed in, in emergency departments. That's about 600 cases a year. And, and if that's the case, your, your treatment options are certainly limited. And this is posing a huge problem for, for, for oncologists. The treatment uh, of a late stage lung cancer patient, um, is very, very difficult. So we need to get, uh, people caught at an early stage, make people aware of the signs and symptoms of lung cancer. And, and certainly what we find now that a lot of people perhaps have a lot of fear going to their GP about some of these symptoms and maybe not quite aware of the seriousness of them. Uh, and the, the symptoms things. being w- w- which? Yeah. A, a cough? Well, yeah, well, difficulty breathing, wheezing, mm. cough that doesn't go away or, or perhaps a change in a long-term cough. If you're getting repeated chest infections that don't seem to go away even after antibiotics, um, feeling very tired, uh, a hoarse voice, a very serious one would be coughing up blood uh, or stain, phlegm, uh, pain in your chest, especially when you when you cough or breathe. Um, and of course, swelling around the face or neck and difficulty swallowing are also symptoms. Now, these symptoms can be caused by other things. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have lung cancer, but they certainly are symptoms that need to be checked out and could in- indicate that there's a serious problem there. It's just people tend to underestimate these symptoms and perhaps live with them for a long period of time. And do you think that perhaps sometimes general practitioners underestimate these symptoms? I I mean, if you're continuously being prescribed antibiotics for chest infection, surely the GP has a role in this? Well, yeah, I suppose, yeah, it's true. Um, And and again, it's something that we're trying to encourage all GPs to be much more aware of of these signs and symptoms. I suppose people um, perhaps underplay the symptoms themselves. Uh, and maybe, uh, you know, we're finding that they don't actually go along to their GP until a late stage. Uh, so it's not just the, the GP, it's, it's perhaps a responsibility for us all to kind of take seriously these symptoms. Uh, and uh, it's true to say that this is uh, the same with all cancers, isn't it? Uh, that uh, the prospects yeah. of a, a better prognosis are uh, when it's detected at an early stage. Most definitely, that's the message, really. And unfortunately, with many cancers, uh, it, it's very difficult to know what clear symptoms the symptoms are. Uh, but there are some common symptoms, such as weight loss and tiredness, and um, you know, lumps and, and bleeding are kind of key signs. But I think the message is for people, especially uh, from 50 onwards, to go for regular checkups um, to really inform the doctor of, of your, your, your medical history, uh, especially if there's cancer in the family, if you've been smoking for a long period of time and perhaps given up. Good to remind the doctor of all of these things uh, and go along, uh, especially if you haven't been for a long period of time. And of course, we have a, at our Irish Cancer Society, we have a, a helpline number there with cancer nurses, a free phone number. If anyone's concerned, please give us a call on one eight hundred two hundred seven hundred. All right, and we'll repeat that in a moment. As you say, smoking yeah. uh, is quite often uh, the main factor uh, in causing lung cancer and lifestyle. Quite often, the reason why people will develop uh, all different types of uh, cancer. Smoking, obviously, something that's not recommended, uh, but there are other things that people should be thinking about as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the other major one is is, is weight management and, uh, you know, trying to avoid being overweight. And if you are overweight, certainly uh, try and get get back to a healthy weight um, because we know that, that some cancers, uh, there's a very clear link between 
uh, obesity and 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 cancer. So that's a big risk factor. Alcohol as well. Perhaps people don't consider that, but you know, uh, about uh, 500 alcohol-related cancers a year um, uh, is a cause of, of, of alcohol. So, um, and you know, alcohol lack of physical activity is a really important one as well. Um, you know, and and these are these are the real important lifestyle diet. Of course, the food that's high in fat, calorie, um, salt. The, these type of foods, pro- highly processed foods, certainly are linked to, to cancer as well. Mm. Uh, so these are the life type, lifestyle factors that, that really can help reduce the risk of cancer. It's estimated there's about 4 in 10 uh, cancers are, are preventable by, by kind of living a healthy lifestyle. So there's a lot we can do to okay. reduce our risk of cancer. Uh, and what about the other 6 out of 10? Uh, the six out of ten. Well, certainly, um, family history is a big one. Mm. Uh, viruses, um, occupational can- uh, occupational carcinogens, perhaps picked mm. up but through 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 chemicals being exposed to certain chemicals that, such as asbestos, um, dust paints. But certainly, family history is a big factor as well. Uh, radon gas uh, certainly linked to lung cancer. Uh, viruses. There's a there's a number of of other factors there. Perhaps that. that that we don't know a lot about and perhaps that's why we have to continue to invest in research and find out more. And as a result of uh, the ongoing research and uh, the advances in uh, medicine, uh, I suppose a diagnosis is not today what it might have been at one time and uh, that treatment is far more readily available. I mean, we all know somebody who has had cancer or left us because of cancer and it's a terrible thing. And for that reason, uh, undoubtedly, it's a terrible diagnosis to receive. Absolutely, and, and but I think we do have some reasons to be optimistic. There's about 170,000 people now living beyond cancer, have had cancer and recovered. Uh, we know, for, for for example, in breast and prostate cancer, the survival rates are really, really good, up to 90%. Um, so it's, it's certainly not the same fear and taboo that perhaps was many years ago. There's, there's some excellent new innovative treatments available and we have reasons to be optimistic and, and we, we certainly, we would hope to kind of try and change that conversation about cancer to be much more positive and optimistic going forward. All right. And uh, as you say, uh, you'd like to see screening put into place uh, for lung cancer. You're suggesting to people that they would see their GPs regularly and to to report any symptoms uh, that they have. Uh, And of course, uh, we're all encouraged in different ways, uh, whether we're men or women, to test ourselves. Uh, And I think there's always been uh, the case uh, where women were more inclined to test themselves than men. Would that continue to be the case? It seems to be the way, you know, we're seeing a bit of a change in that now. Perhaps men are, a bit, bit, are becoming a bit more proactive. Uh, but certainly the, perhaps the women are a bit more comfortable uh, talking about their health than men. Uh, we have some information here at the Irish Cancer Society, particularly for men in relation to male cancers, such as prostate, testicular, and bowel cancers. Um, and it is true the women seem to pick up the cancers much quicker, uh, particularly in relation to skin cancer. You know, I think there are more women diagnosed with skin cancer, but unfortunately more men uh, kind of are diagnosed at a late stage with skin cancer, which mm-hmm. is a very preventable one. 
So it is true, the women seem to pick it up a little bit earlier, uh, but that we see it's beginning to change. And I suppose the message for people is to be positive that, you know, that there's, we can be optimistic about the treatments if they're detected early. Okay, Kevin. Listen, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin O'Hagan, Cancer Prevention Manager with the Irish Cancer Society and uh, the free phone number for the Irish Cancer Society if you would like to speak with uh, one of the nurses is 1-800-200-700. Now, before we finish up today, let's go back to some more of the thoughts that you've been sharing with us. Marie Kearns has come back into studio. Yes, I'm just staying with that interview Mm. if I can because Mm. we had a phone call from a listener who says that... uh, the, the role of the GP in diagnosing possible cancer shouldn't be underestimated. She says in her own situation, her partner died two months after finding out he had stage four lung cancer, which had gone into his bones and his spine. But his GP had been treating him for bronchitis and orthopaedic problems. And, you know, she feels that the role of the GP is paramount and that he was. A lot of men don't go to doctors, but she says mm. her partner was somebody who did look after himself and did go to doctors. OK, difficult to contend with, no doubt. Uh, then moving on from that, if I can, mm. we've had lots of reaction this morning to various different topics. Audrey phoned in about the interview with Father Sean Healy. Mm. And she says um, he's on there and he's talking predominantly about social welfare and homelessness and to increase income tax revenue. I have a problem with that. I work and I pay 52% of income in tax I don't have a holiday, Michael. I pay my mortgage. And I feel a lot of the contributing factor to the lack of house supply is that we've let too many asylum seekers into the country to look good to Europe. I only have one child because that is what I can afford. Okay, we'll have to make that the final word in the programme, I'm afraid. Uh, I can see you have pages of comments, (laughs) uh, but we'll come back to them tomorrow because our time has run out on us today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.